Well, if you would tonight, we're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. As we journey through this letter to the church in Corinth from the Apostle Paul, we've been reminded of several things. The last chapter we looked at, he mentioned the rights and privileges of being believers, particularly in relation to the knowledge of scriptures and the knowledge of the one true God as opposed to idols. I have to say, as Americans, we have many rights and privileges, don't we? In fact, we could probably list several right now, particularly if we grew up in the last several generations. We know the rights and privileges that the law tells us that we have. Well, this evening, or this morning, rather, we looked at the imperative of Christians to have attitudes of gratitude. Tonight, in our present context... As we look at this, we understand that we are tempted instead in our culture to focus on demanding our rights, even rights that perhaps are not based on foundations of the law. In fact, it seems to be more important in our society right now to express our rights than it is to thank others for our blessings. But while we're encouraged to know and even celebrate our rights as believers, Paul did, yet at the same time, what do we do with those rights? Well, here is Paul's example concerning some of his rights as an apostle and what he did with them. 1 Corinthians 9, the first 14 verses. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ." Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. As we consider these truths, we're going to stop there, pick up the rest of chapter 9 next week, but tonight the first 14 verses. Let's bow in prayer. O Lord, these are your words, inspired by your Holy Spirit, by the hand of the Apostle Paul. We pray that you will help us to submit to them, help us to hear them, help us to follow them. 
Lord, give us a reality check that we might, by your grace, be obedient to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week on Thursday at Thanksgiving, all but one of us Irwins experienced a turkey trot. You know what a turkey trot is. It is a race in which you on Thanksgiving Day go out with your family. Some people may be dressed in odd clothing. Others may be running a race in order to win the prize. Some of us are just running to get some exercise or to be with our family. And we experienced right there near our home just a few uh, resident or a few residential areas down the road from us a turkey trot, a 5K, 3.1 miles. As we ran those particular miles, my two sons, my daughter and I, we ran and of course being the old guy and out of shape, I was the last one in the turkey trot in our family. And it was a real race with my children, my daughter who runs in college and my two sons who ran in high school this year. My older son was determined not to let his sister beat him. And my youngest son is looking to the day when he will beat both of his siblings. I, however, was trying to just run most of the race. And yet, at the end of the race, we got to the end and we found out that because of my daughter's training, she was actually the second fastest female runner in that race. In her age range, she was number one. And we rejoiced. In fact, we stuck around so that she could gain the prize. And of course, this is what happens at these races. They will announce sometimes the third and second place winners. In this case, just the first place overall winners in both the male and female categories. And then according to ages. And of course, she knew she wasn't going to win the whole thing. There was one runner that was above her who was actually in an older age bracket. And then it came to her age bracket. And lo and behold, they announced somebody else, and she did not get the trophy. So we stood around and we asked, well, what should we do? Should we go and tell the organizers of the race that really it was my daughter who should have won that trophy? And I pondered it. I thought perhaps it might be good that even the timer should know that his timing or something was off, and so I approached the people at the chagrin of my daughter and I said to them, my daughter actually won that trophy. We don't need the trophy. She doesn't need the recognition, but we want to make sure that your records are straight for the next time you time a race. And of course, Elena did not get the trophy because we did not demand it. We did not exert our rights. But should we have? Should we have exerted our rights and gone after the woman who stole her trophy? Well, I don't think the scripture is addressing that, but it is addressing something else. If that attempt to exert our rights would have affected the gospel or our Christian witness, then we should have been willing to give up our rights to that experience. You see, there's a definite answer in that circumstance. That's what Paul is talking about here. Yes, we have rights. Yes, even as Americans, we have wonderful rights, and much of our law is based on rights that we find in the foundation of Scripture. The right to life, for example. This is a right that God has given us. It's God who gives life and who takes it away. But there are times when even the best of rights, we as believers are willing to give up 
for the sake of the gospel. And this is what Paul is demonstrating. He's just mentioned that in chapter 8 in regard to meat offered to idols. He says, if in the case where it might affect someone adversely in their walk with the Lord and their sanctification, I will then never eat meat. I'll be a vegetarian, he says, if it would help those who are walking and trying to follow Christ. So now he shows how he does this in his life in another example. He begins to address something that has been a sore point for him and the Corinthian church for evidently some time since he left them, and that is there are those in the church who are questioning his authority as an apostle. And so he begins with a barrage of questions in this chapter. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? It's almost like a a bullets, a series of bullets coming at you. Is this true? Is this true? Is this true? And of course, these are rhetorical questions with the obvious expected answer. Yes, I am an apostle. Yes, I am free. Yes, I have seen Jesus our Lord. And yes, you are my workmanship. You see, Paul is demonstrating his place as an apostle. That is, that special calling or office of the New Testament times of those who had seen the resurrected Lord and were called and sent out, that's what apostle means, sent out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as with eyewitness testimony and apostolic teaching. And so Paul says, I am an apostle. Of course, what would apostles, in order to qualify for that position, have to have had in their background. First of all, apostles must have seen the risen Christ. And Paul says this, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Of course, the expected answer is yes. When did this take place? Paul would say it was not like everybody else. And so therefore, he's, as he would say in another place, the least of the apostles. But if we were to turn to Galatians Chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he would recount a little bit of what he experienced in seeing the risen Lord. It says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. In other words, he's saying he did see the Lord Jesus. And if we turn to his conversion account in Acts chapter 9, we will see that on the road to persecute the Christians in Damascus, the Lord himself appeared to Paul. And of course, this is what Paul is referring to. I saw Jesus, he says, the resurrected Christ. And then in essence there, he was commissioned in the presence of witnesses. Now, if we turn to the early chapters of the book of Acts, we see that as they chose an apostle to replace Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, one of the requirements, of course, was that they were with them during that time. One of the requirements as well was that they saw the resurrected Jesus. And here it was that they were witnesses to God's grace in Christ. And, of course, in Acts chapter 13, when Paul is actually called to missionary and an apostle. He's sent out with the witnesses in the church who experienced the Holy Spirit's calling of Paul to that purpose. It says that Paul was set apart by the Holy Spirit, in essence commissioned for that task to be the missionary to the Gentiles. 
And of course, it was verified as well. One of the things about the apostles, especially the apostles who followed Jesus, unlike Paul, because they were with him all those entire three years, they were sent out from time to time to preach the gospel, to do signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. At one point, he sends out 72 individuals. At another point, he sends out the 12 Paul, too, is someone who was expected then, because of his ministry as an apostle, to be verified by signs and wonders. In 2 Corinthians, we see that very case. To the church in Corinth, he writes these words in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So Paul is saying, you know who I am. You know I'm an apostle because I saw Jesus. There is a commissioning that was given to me with many witnesses. There were even those we could look back on and say there were those who heard the words of Jesus as he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and his conversion. It's verified by signs and wonders. And now he says in verse 2, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You see, he's not just an apostle verified by signs and wonders. He's he's an apostle verified by the Corinthian church that there was fruit in that ministry. There are those in the Corinthian church who were converts to Christ as a result of his ministry. And so therefore, he says, you Corinthians, you are the seal of my apostleship. In other words, he's saying and claiming that because of their interactions with him and because of those who came to Christ as a result of him, there is proof that he is an apostle. And then he's going to begin talking about his rights. But look at this proof. Now, proof is very important. If you get pulled over by someone who claims to be a policeman and they're not, they get into big trouble, don't they? Every once in a while you read about someone who's put lights on their car and they're an impersonator of of a law officer and they pull somebody over and they try to perhaps get money from them or get influence or find some kind of power in that situation. They feign authority as a police officer and this would really put them in big trouble if they're caught. But Paul is no faux apostle. He is the real deal. And because of that, it came with rights and privileges. So then he begins what he calls his defense. This is the word apology or apologia, a reminder that he's defending here his rights as an apostle to those who would examine him. In other words, those who would question his authority in the church. And so he says, do we not have the right then to do three different things? The first, the rights of this apostle are to eat and drink. Now, of course, he's not saying that if he's not an apostle, he should just starve to death. That's not what it's talking about here. The idea of eat and drink, the first option here is he's saying here this right to eat and drink is basically to be provided for in daily provisions. So in other words, option one here is that he's provided board. That's what we call it now. When somebody goes off to college and they're given a meal plan as part of the package, then it's called room and board. So in essence, 
He's saying that an apostle here who's traveling, in this case, as a missionary from place to place, proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, it is his right, in essence, to receive board, to receive those who would give him food and drink. But what is the other option? What happens if he's not given that right? Then it would be what we call pay to play. This is what happens perhaps when you're a walk-on athlete at a college and you're not given the scholarship of room and board in order to have the privilege to play on that team. Because you're not a scholarship athlete, you have to pay your own way. And so here it is. Does Paul, as an apostle, does he have the right to be given food and drink for his ministry or does he have to pay his own way? That's the first right. The second right is to take along a believing wife. Now, the assumption here, of course, is that they are not to have unbelieving spouses. Of course, in this case, we know Paul was single. And so he says here, do I not have the right to take a believing wife? And so he cites the first example. Evidently, Peter and others, whether they visited Corinth or other churches, would take their their wife along with them. And of course, when they're given room and board, then the wife would be given that room and board as well. They're to provide for the family in that essence. That's option one. But option two, if they're not given that privilege, what do you do? Either Paul, in Paul's case, does that mean he would have to remain single? Or if he was married, and of course by all indication we don't think that he was, But if he was married, he'd have to leave his wife behind because he perhaps could not provide for her needs while he's on the mission field. So this is the second right. The first right is to be provided with food and drink. The second right is to be able to take a believing wife with you so that she too is provided for on the field. And then the third right is this. He says... Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, of course, this doesn't mean that as a pastor or a gospel proclaimer, an apostle, he really doesn't do anything. You know, the joke around the world, of course, is that the pastor works one day a week, right? That's not what he's talking about. Hopefully, the pastors are working as hard as the next guy. But here he says... Is it not true that he should earn his living as he labors for the gospel and not have to do a second job, what we might call a tent-making ministry, of course, referring to Paul himself. We know that what Paul did, particularly by this point in his ministry, is he was working on the side as a tent-maker. That was something he did with Priscilla and Aquila and others. And so he gives three examples here of why the right to not have to do those things should be for an apostle. The first one is a soldier. He says, if you're a soldier, should you live or soldier at your own expense? How silly that would be, that the government would not provide for your means and your labors as a soldier. If you were merely a volunteer paying your own way, how could you possibly be an effective soldier? The second one is the owner of a vineyard. The guy plants the vineyard, takes care of the vineyard, does everything with the vineyard, and why shouldn't he partake of the fruit of the vineyard? Eat the grapes and the uh, fruit of the, the grapes, the wine, and so forth. Why would he not be able to partake of those things? 
And then the last thing is a shepherd. A shepherd tending the flock, and of course, if they go through all the process of taking care of them, protecting them, building them up, fattening them up, and they provide milk for others, why should they not partake of those things? So there he goes through all these rites as an apostle. Now, why is he saying all these things? It's because evidently, either he's given up these rites, or they're not providing these rites to him faithfully. I have to say, Christian workers, unfortunately, are often some of the most underpaid people in the world. Now, this is not necessarily an American phenomenon. In fact, many pastors, I think, in America are paid quite well. However, it's a world reality that sometimes those who are working for the sake of the gospel, perhaps as a missionary or a pastor, perhaps as a Christian teacher or, or some other support person in ministry, Often they are paid a pittance. And these rites are simple matters. But they are simply common sense for the church, particularly with the Old Testament history in mind. We just read in Deuteronomy, not only the priests, but also the Levites were to gain their due, their living, their food and drink, their room and board in order to provide for the ministry of the people before God. So these are all the rights. Paul has said, here I am, I'm an apostle, here are my rights, here are my privileges, here is my background for all to see, and here, in fact, is a scriptural mandate for how this takes place. Here he says, verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? In other words, are all these just human examples that I'm just giving you and throwing out to persuade you to pay me? He says, no, here is the law of Moses. And he quotes a very odd verse, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now it's kind of odd because we understand what it means when you're taking care of your animals and of course they're they're laboring on your behalf and you're uh, plowing the field or whatever you're doing for harvest, reaping and whatever. Uh, Your ox, and he says, don't muzzle them, let them partake. Uh, They deserve their wages. And here he says this. He says, uh, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. In other words, the application of this is this. It's not just the ox that he's worried about, God is, when he commands Moses to write these words. He's actually applying this to all the workers who work for someone else. And of course, who does the apostle, in this case, work for? Yes, he works for God, and God supplies many of his needs, but on a material fashion, he also works on behalf of God's people. And so they should pay him. It's a scriptural mandate for paying workers. And of course, here is the reason why. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? You see, Paul said we're sowing spiritual seeds. In other words, we're like that ox. Uh, You know, it's kind of funny here. Paul is saying, I'm a spiritual ox going out laboring in the field. And the result should be, in the least, material pay. 
He says others have received this treatment. Why not us? I remember, I don't think this is necessarily the case, I remember when I was a boy, there was a retired pastor who was kind of odd in many ways, and he would come to us and eat with us Thanksgiving dinner almost every year. He had never married, he was alone, he was now retired, and we heard all these stories about him in the community. Evidently, this pastor from time to time would go out in the garden of his parishioners and just start picking the, 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 from, the van, from the vine or from the plants. In fact, he did that in our own garden. He'd just go out and start picking peas or start picking something else and start gathering those things and put them in his pockets and walk home. In fact, this pastor had the audacity at one point to go into a farmer's house while they were home. They didn't even know he entered the house and began using the razor of one of the farmers, shaving himself in the bathroom. Now, is this what Paul is saying, that a pastor should just be able to go around and just help himself to anything from his parishioners so that he can gain uh, a living and be able to care for himself? Of course not. But he is saying it's important that you give the credit, you give material things to those who are laboring on your behalf. Now, is Paul saying all this because he wants money? Is he saying all this because he wants to have the influence and power that he deserves in this Corinthian church? Is he doing all this so that he can say, look at me as you look at Cephas or as you look at Apollos or others and the church seems so divided in Corinth that you should look at Paul as the best among them? No. He says this. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You see, here he's saying, this is Paul's example, and of course he's also referred to Barnabas here, Barnabas' example. They did not demand the right. You see, the rights are true. The rights are scriptural. The rights are things that God commands the church to do, but Paul says, if it would affect the gospel proclamation, I will not demand that right. In fact, he said, I would rather endure, the idea is endure hardship rather than adding this obstacle. The word for obstacle is so interesting in this context. It's actually an incision or a cutting in the road that would prevent the advance of an enemy from coming up that road easily. So in other words, he's saying, if it were to cause someone in the church to keep from advancing towards the gospel, or if it would keep the gospel from advancing in the city of Corinth, then I will not demand that right. This is so foreign to our American sensibilities, isn't it? We're supposed to demand our rights at all cost and sue them if we don't get them. We're supposed to demand that we're treated in a special way because of who we are or what we've done. Whatever we demand should be ours, after all, is for our right to pursue happiness, is it not? But here he says, if for the sake of the gospel I have these rights, yet if it is for the sake of the gospel, I will not demand them. He then in the end tells them, At the end of this, he reminds them again that those who served in the temple shared in the temple food. 
He reminds them of Christ's command on the matter. If Deuteronomy 25.4 wasn't enough, then perhaps God's words through Jesus in Matthew 10 or Luke 10 would be enough. As he sent out the disciples, he reminds them that they deserve their food, their wages, as they go out and minister to the people. Again, is Paul telling Corinth how to pay him, or is he telling them how to treat other gospel workers? Is Paul patting himself on the back? No. Paul is demonstrating how to practice what he preached in chapter 8. It all fits together. He has just given the example of the right or freedom to eat meat offered to idols based on the knowledge we have that idols don't really exist. They're really nothing. And so meat offered to them really isn't offered to anything unless we understand it's offered to demons. But here he confirms how all of us must place the gospel first. In the case of offering meat to idols, he says, refrain from it if it would be a hindrance to someone's sanctification in Christ. Here he says, here is what we've done. Even though we deserve to be paid by you, we deserve to be treated as those who were sent to give you the gospel as apostles. Even though Jesus himself directs the pay of the apostle by the church. Yet, for the sake of the gospel, I give up the right because the gospel comes first. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other blessings will come. I have to say, we, even we in the church, sometimes we get messed up. We go into a store, we get cut off by a car. We get cheated out of a prize, and those things become very important to us. But if they become more important than the gospel, then we must understand we should give them up. Let's pray. Father, we live in a land that is focused on rights, that is focused on privileges, that is focused on advancement and power and influence. Lord, help us to give you the power and the influence and the rights. Help us to put the gospel first. Lord, help me to do this as a believer seeking to follow you in my brokenness. And Lord, help us all to put the gospel first, we pray.